But thank you, uh, and it's a delight to be with you all. And uh, you never never seen the audience from this point of view, so this is uh, this is new for me. And my wife Ruth uh, and I have been here, like Randy said, from the inception. She tells the story. She said, "Well, you know, David was a Bible teacher all his years, and uh, uh, we just couldn't find uh, the right fit for us as a church." And until we started to listen to uh, a Bible teacher by the name of Jeff Cranford. And uh, with someone that taught the Word of God, she said, Aha, this might be it, and truly it has been, and we've enjoyed it uh, so much. So I hope you got an outline on the way in, and uh, I want to encourage you to take it. And I want to also say that there is additional... Uh, personal application or family group discussion guide that is available for you out in the back afterwards. It will be online, I'm told, uh, afterwards as well. And so you can download that and look at that and consider that as just your own personal study and something that you'd like to learn about a little more as we go deeper. And uh, so I want to welcome those of you who are live streamed today and say good morning to you from the hot desert, and wherever you are, I'm sure it's cooler than it is here. So we're going to begin today by opening our Bibles, if we have one, or looking at a psalm, Psalm 22. And I've simply entitled this message as, if God is good, why do I hurt? Why do I still hurt if God is good? And we're going to read this scripture in a moment. And I want you to read it with me. So this is a critical issue of study. In fact, it was after I heard of uh, the challenges that our pastor is going through that I said, Lord, what do you want me to preach on? And uh, this is what he told me. So uh, hoping that uh, all of you will profit from it. I know that all of you have suffered and will suffer in this life. And uh, so I know that what God has to say is very important to all of us. So as we come to Psalm 22, uh, first of all, I want you to understand that uh, King David is the author by the Holy Spirit of this psalm, but he never experienced anything like he is writing about. And that's one of the things that makes this psalm so amazing. This is a graphic picture of an execution, a crucifixion. And crucifixion was not practiced in the time of David. It was never used by our Jewish friends at all. And uh, he's writing a thousand years before the time of Jesus. Now, I want you to understand that. And we're only going to look at the first 11 verses, but I want to commend the entire psalm. The sweet singer of Israel, King David, and what he has to say, because it records the Messiah's anguish. On the cross. In fact, this amazing psalm will take you right to the cross itself, a vivid description. In fact, David is called a prophet in the New Testament, and he describes the Messiah centuries before he came. So as you read, you're going to see Jesus at Calvary, his cry to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The period of darkness that came, the ridicule of the people as they were gathered there, his thirst and his pain, his pierced hands and his feet, the gambling of his clothes. And remember, he endured all of this, the Bible teaches, for you. 
And this is the psalm which I believe Jesus is meditating on as he is hanging on the cross. And finally, at the end of the psalm, in fact, just before he died, the very last thing that our Lord said was, Tetelestai, it is finished, paid in full. And if you look at the very last phrase of Psalm 22 in the Hebrew, you will find that same phrase. It says, he has done it. Well, who's the he? Referring to God as the subject, but it can well be translated, it is finished. So I want you to read with me aloud, if you would, these first 11 verses of Psalm 22. Are you ready? Let's begin. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night and am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you, our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for giving us your word and the help of your spirit to illumine our minds so that we can begin to comprehend your plan and purpose. We pray that you would minister encouragement and hope and comfort to all today, those especially that are suffering. We think of our pastor, we think of his wife, Laura, we think of the family and ask that you would put your arms around them and lift them and encourage them in this hour Lord, we thank you that in the hour of darkness, you will be there with us. And we commit these things to you and pray them in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. A thousand years before Jesus was born, these words were written. One young lady came to me and asked, she said this, she said, what kind of a God would take my dad away when I was 16 years of age? She had been without her father for a few years by that time, and I said, well, let me give you something to think about. The Bible says that all death is caused by sin, and that all sin is caused by Satan, and so if Satan causes all sin and therefore all death, who should we point a finger at when someone dies? And if we're going to blame someone, shouldn't we blame Satan and not God? Was there any death in the Garden of Eden? Before sin entered the picture, I said, will there be any death in heaven? And after thinking about this for a few moments, this young adult answered back and she said, well, maybe it's time 
that I give God another chance in my life. Maybe it's time that you give God another chance in your life. In fact, here's a very cheerful thought for us today. If you live long enough, you will suffer. Aren't you glad you came today? In fact, the only thing that will prevent you from suffering is if you don't live long enough, and then you'll cause someone else to suffer. Job, one of the oldest books in your Bible, says this, Man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. You ever see sparks fly down? They always go up, don't they? And that's what Job had to tell us. Jesus said this. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. It's like buying a car. Here's the standard operating things that come with this car. But he also said, in me, you may have peace. That's the extra equipment. I want the extra equipment. How about you? I know I'm going to have trouble in this world, but I want to have that peace that passes all understanding that comes from knowing the Lord. There comes a time in every life when the storms are going to hit. You don't have to be in New Orleans or Louisiana. Suddenly, unexpectedly, cataclysmically, and as some might say, all H-E double hockey stakes breaks loose. One day your life is sunny and calm and clear and placid and predictable and your job is secure and your children are behaving and your health is good and then out of the blue like a tornado, a tsunami sweeping across your landscape, tragedy strikes and you're hit hard. And it's never pretty, never. A business goes sour, a marriage dissolves, a child rebels, a loved one is diagnosed with the C word. Your daughter miscarries, a teenage son hit by a drunk driver and killed instantly. Your husband is tired of being married and leaves you for another. This could never happen to you but it just did. Life is playing hardball, and you don't have a glove. The dam breaks loose, and it happens to all of us. No one is exempt, my friend. No one, no pastors are exempt. One way or another, tragedy strikes every single life, and when it does, you're shaken to your very core. You can feel the gnawing fear in the pit of your stomach. You're in shock. Sometimes too numb even to respond. You long to wake up from this nightmare, but you can't. You've never been more awake. I guarantee that if I went around this crowd this morning, we'd find lots and lots of historic, horrific stories at a personal level. You know, the Bible doesn't try and duck these issues. It was John Stott, the theologian, that says the fact of suffering undoubtedly constitutes the single greatest challenge to the Christian faith. C.S. Lewis was questioned about suffering by one who suggested that a good God would not inflict pain. And Lewis replied, what do people mean when they say, I'm not afraid of God because I know he's good? Have they never been to a dentist? I mean, think about that. Doesn't the doctor or the dentist have a good purpose for the pain that he causes? Answer, oh, yeah, I guess he does. You know, in our world of pain, where's God? Where is he when we hurt? The psalmist says this, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. 
He saves or rescues those who are crushed in spirit. And I love that verse. But does he understand our suffering? Because some have chosen to deny God's existence because they cannot imagine a God who would allow such misery. Others believe he exists, but they want nothing to do with him because they don't think he could be good. And I want to suggest that's a puzzle. And it's difficult to understand. It's difficult to comprehend. But friend, here in the book, God has given us some answers. Why would a good God allow suffering to touch all of our lives? And I want to suggest to you five pieces to the puzzle. You know, as never before, we need today a theology of suffering. We have some people that come along and says, God wants you to be wealthy and wise and healthy. And it isn't God's will for you to be sick. And I want to say to you, have you ever read this book? Have you ever read this book? Have you ever read the book of Job? Or how about the book of 1 Peter in the New Testament? Or have you ever read about God's chosen people, Israel? Have you ever been to Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum, with me? Which is a great challenge to many of my Jewish friends to even believe that there's a God because of the incredible suffering. If you've ever been through that place, you're never the same. I've been through it many times. Because like your pastor, Ruth and I have loved taking people to Israel. We've seen what has happened in their hearts and in their relationship with the one true living God, the God of Israel. But what? What are the pieces to the puzzle? So I want to share with you the answer to that question. Why God would allow suffering, and yet he's a good God. Number one, God allows suffering to alert us that something is seriously wrong with the world that we live in. Can you imagine a world without pain? It's a little hard to imagine, isn't it? What would it be like? Well, our first response is, man, it would be great. No more aches, no more pains. I don't have to take those pills in the morning anymore. No more throbbing sensation when I miss the nail and hit my thumb. No more pain. But you know, if you remove pain in this world as we know it today, there would be no alarm signal to alert you to a broken bone, to a torn ligament. There would be no discomfort to warn you of a cancerous tumor that's trying to take over your body. There'd be no chest pains to let you know that, hey, your arteries are clogging up. And as much as we hate pain, we have to admit it often serves a good purpose. It alerts us when something goes wrong. Could it be that pain is God's way to alert us that there's something wrong with our world? And maybe there's something wrong with me. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. And he speaks to us in our consciences. But he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I think he's right. You know, we know one thing as we look at the condition of our planet. Something has gone awry. Amen? I mean, like a huge neon sign, the reality of suffering screams the message, this world is not the way God created it to be. we got tsunamis and floods and earthquakes and tornadoes and the spread of disease. Could it be that a spiritual disease is racking our planet? You know, in Romans chapter 8, Paul describes the whole creation as groaning 
eagerly looking, it's interesting in the Greek, with an outstretched neck, looking for the time when it will be freed from the effects of sin because there's coming a time when that will happen. But we've also learned by experience that suffering can be caused by people who continue to make bad choices. You know, the great gift of human freedom carries with it the risk of making wrong choices. Whatever you believe about evil, evil does present us with a choice. And God's not going to force anyone to love him. Even though that's the greatest commandment, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. God will not force you. God's going to give you an option. And that's what evil does. And so we have to deal with the hard truth that some suffering comes because of the consequences of our own sin. King David knew what it was like to feel God's tough love after his adulterous affair with Bathsheba and his devious plan to have her husband killed, the pain came and the pain stayed. And he didn't repent until Nathan the prophet pointed his bony finger at the king and said, Thou art the man. Here's what David wrote about his own experience in Psalm 32. He said this. He said, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. That's what he had to say. And then he went on to say this. He said, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me and my vitality was sapped as in the heat of summer. There was something wrong inside and that's what happened. In Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews quotes Proverbs chapter 3. And he says that we have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to us as sons. And that is that every father disciplines his son and reproves his son and even scourges a disobedient son. And that's what Proverbs tells us and that's what the New Testament says as well. And would you or would you not expect a loving father to correct his child? Yes, you would. And so the first piece of the puzzle is that God uses suffering to alert us to serious problems. Pain sounds the alarm. It tells us, hey, something is wrong. But he also uses trouble to encourage us to find solutions in him. And that's the second part of the puzzle, to direct us to turn away from my own inadequate resources and to place my trust in God. You know, when a person turns away from God, suffering is often the reason. But strangely, when people, when people turn to God and draw closer to him, suffering also gets the credit. Why do people respond so differently? Some turn away and get angry at God, and some are drawn close to God and, and love him. I think of Johnny Erickson Tata as a young lady paralyzed in that diving accident and Phil Yancey in his wonderful book, Where's God When It Hurts? He describes the gradual change that took place in her life. And here's what he says. At first, she found it impossible to reconcile her condition with her belief in a loving God. You ever been there? The turning to God was very gradual a melting in her attitude from bitterness to trust dragged over three years of tears and violent questioning. And a turning point came 
when a close friend told her, Johnny, you aren't the only one. Jesus knows how you feel. Why, he was paralyzed too. Her friend Cindy described how Jesus was fastened to the cross, paralyzed by the nails. And it had never occurred to Johnny that God might have felt the same piercing pain that now racked her body, and it brought her comfort. Johnny wrestled with God. Yes, but she did not turn away from him. And Johnny now calls her accident a glorious intruder. Isn't that interesting? And she claims it as a best thing because God used it to direct her thoughts toward him. In the Apostle Paul's time of pain, he turned to God. And the Lord told Paul, he said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfect in weakness. And so in suffering, God directs us to turn our focus away from our inadequate resources to God. Suffering has a way of showing us how limited our resources really are. I mean, why would a good God allow suffering? Suffering forces us to rethink our values and our priorities and our pleasures and our relationship with people and especially with God. We have to evaluate the direction of our lives. We can choose despair by camping on our struggles or we can choose to hope by embracing the promises of God. And here's Job after losing not one child, all ten children, and his wealth, and his health. I want to ask you, how could, God, how could Job say, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away? What did he say next, church? Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know what Job did? He chose to turn to God. He chose to trust him. Will you? In fact, later Job said, though he slay me, still I will trust him. And so a good God allows suffering to direct us to put our trust in him. But there's a third part of the puzzle, and that is to shape us or to reshape us in character development, in perseverance, and in hope. You know, coaches often use the phrase, no pain, no gain. In fact, every time I drag myself to the gym and feel the pain of stretching exercises, I wonder, why why am I doing this? Why am I putting myself through this uncomfortable pain? And then I recognize my blood pressure and my pulse rate are kept lower and my middle is not expanding like it used to be and I feel more healthy and I don't know that I can hit the ball any further. But anyway, uh, I guess it's true. The gain is worth the pain. But what about the pain we don't choose? What about that pain? I want you to hear the words of a fellow sufferer. If you believe that a good God would not allow suffering to come into your life, you need to read the story of the Apostle Paul. Oh, amazing how that man suffered. And yet here's what he said in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. He said, we exult in our tribulations. We rejoice in our sufferings. And I think as I read that, what is that guy smoking? You know? (laughs) We rejoice in our sufferings. We exult in our tribulations. Why? Because we know something. 
Now, tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character brings us hope, and hope does not disappoint because God has poured out his love in our hearts by the presence of the Holy Spirit, the divine Ruach of God. How could he say we rejoice when we endure such painful tragedy? Well, clearly Paul is telling us to rejoice about what God can and what God will do for us through our times of trials and suffering. I think of Joseph, one of the great, wonderful patriarchs, one of my favorite Old Testament characters. I think of what he said in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. He said as he faced his brothers in that incredible showdown, you talk about, okay, Corral, man, this was it for Joseph. I mean, there he was with his brothers, and he says to them, you meant evil against me. You meant to harm me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about the present result of preserving and saving many people alive. I mean, if God had not allowed Joseph's years of suffering, he never would have become such a powerful agent for social justice and spiritual healing. Never. You know, many people identify with this story of Joseph because they know that most of what they really needed for success in life came through their most difficult and painful experiences. I've often said that failure is underrated because we learn a whole lot more through failure than success. Can I hear an amen? amen? That is really true. And when you become a believer in the Messiah, God doesn't zap you into perfection. He does remove the penalty of sin, and he puts you on the road to heaven. But life now becomes a time of character development with a great end result. Listen to what James says. In James chapter 1, he says, and this is amazing. I've pondered this. I've memorized this. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Oh, isn't this fun? <laughs> well, that's not exactly the same, joy and fun. But when you encounter various trials, consider it joy, knowing that the testing of your faith produces, it produces endurance. And if you'll let endurance have its end result in your life, you'll be complete, you'll become mature, you'll grow up, you'll lack nothing. God will use these things in your life. And so that's what he's about, to shape us in character development. How have you responded to the difficulties in your life? Have you grown in your faith? Or have you shaken your fist in the face of God and turned away from him? You know what King David testified? And I love this. In the longest chapter in your Bible, it has 176 verses. In Psalm 119, verse 67, David testifies. He confesses. He says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, I obey your word. In fact, in verse 71, he goes on to say, It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. It was good. I wonder how many of you can say that. Think about it. It was good for me to be afflicted. Can I have a hand? Can I see a hand? Anybody say that? Yeah. I think some of the suffering in my life, no doubt it was good. Can you say it was good? And so the fourth piece of the puzzle is that God has a good plan for you, and part of that plan is to use you to help others and to use others to help you. And so now we see that 
A good God allows suffering, and one of, the, one of the reasons is to unite us so that we see our need to help each other in times of trouble. You know, if there's one thing our struggles teach us is how fragile we really are. And I love the way that believers will reach out and genuinely care and show love to those in an hour of crisis or need. We're being strengthened because we've learned that we can face the struggles of life together. We're learning what it means to be the body of Christ. Paul said this, if one part of the body suffers, if your hand hurts, guess what? Every part suffers with it. You get a splinter under your fingernail and your head hurts. I mean, it's amazing. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul explains this. He says, the God of all comfort, and I love that name for God. Do you know him? That he's the God of all comfort? He will comfort you in your hour of need. But why does he do that? He comforts us in all our affliction, the Bible says, so that, purpose, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. Oh, now you've given me a reason for my suffering. You see, we need one another because we have something valuable to offer. Friend, you have spiritual insight. You have spiritual wisdom that you've learned from undergoing various trials in your life. And the best comforters are those who have suffered without a doubt. In fact, the Bible tells us in Galatians 6, 2, because of this, we're to bear each other's burdens. We're to carry each other's burdens. And in this way, we will fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? The same as in the Hebrew Scriptures. Thou shalt love the Lord your God. Thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. And so we see that. In fact, the Bible says that we're to rejoice with the rejoice and we're to what, what are we to do with those who weep, church? We're to weep with them, aren't we? We're to come together. We're to share. And God made us so that we could be dependent, interdependent on each other. We have much to offer those in pain, and others have much to offer us as we go through our troubles. And so we've seen our good God allows pain and suffering to alert us to the problem of sin. Something is wrong here to direct us, to respond to him in faith and hope, to shape us so that we become more like Christ, to unite us so that we will help each other. And there's one last piece of our puzzle. In fact, it's the very heart of the puzzle. A good God allows suffering for this time to bless us with his forgiveness, his presence, and the gift of eternal life, and let me add, eternal life without suffering. The Bible tells us that God came to earth deliberately to take on human suffering and the greatest depths of pain that you can imagine. One of my favorite places to go in Israel is the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, the pressing of the olive. And it was there that our Lord wept, as it were, tears of blood 
The Bible says in Mark 14, 33, my soul is grieved to the point, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death and agony. A little later on the cross, he cries out the very words of Psalm 22, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is there a greater inner agony than the loss of a relationship that we desperately want? And here God the Father did turn away from his son on the cross because in that moment Christ the Messiah was made sin for you and for me. And Jesus Christ was forsaken so that you and I might not be forsaken. We can't comprehend what it would be like to lose the infinite love of the Father that Jesus had from all eternity. So I ask you, why did Jesus do this? Why? The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Why did he do this? For the joy that was set before him, that's why he did it. And we know one thing. Even though you and I experience suffering we know it can't be that he doesn't care or he's indifferent. It was during the height of World War II and historic London was being bombed every night. And one of the advisors to Winston Churchill came and said, Churchill, either your God doesn't care or he's not in control. And Churchill looked back, no doubt, after a pause, holding his cigar I can just see him, can't you? And he says, no, my friend. God is inscrutable. His ways are past finding out. But he does care. And he is in control. And the bombs are still falling. Yeah. He does care. Casting all your care on him because he cares for in the darkest night of the soul, Christians have something to hang on to. We know Christ crucified. We cannot escape the cross where God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he willingly takes it on himself. You ever had a horrible nightmare when you dreamed a tragedy happened to someone in your family? And when you awoke, <laughs> your relief was off the charts? But even more than just your relief, your delight in that, quote, loved one was incredible. Why? Your joy was magnified by the nightmare, wasn't it? I love the way Dr. Luke ends the Gospel of Luke. All the disciples had been there at the cross. They had lost hope. After the crucifixion, they were hidden in that room, locked door, fearing for their lives, fearing that they would be next. And, of course, the resurrection happened, and they met the Lord. And then they spent 40 days with him in the teaching. And then they went to the ascension, and they saw this same Jesus that you have seen lifted up, and they were there on the Mount of Ascension. And Luke then wraps up his whole gospel and he says, 
they there went back to Jerusalem with great joy. And yet, what was ahead for each one of those disciples? Amazing suffering, wasn't it? And yet, with great joy. Could it be that when believers awake in the future resurrection, our joy and appreciation of heaven will be magnified because of this nightmare? I always like to say that God is good enough and heaven is long enough to more than make up for all that you will suffer in this life, my friend. It's true. We so badly desire something greater than what this earth can give us. Enter the Messiah of the resurrection, the one who said at a funeral of a friend and a loved one, he said these words to Martha and Mary. John chapter 11, he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? I love the way Jesus put them to test. And I would say to you, do you believe this? This is the promise of the Messiah. You see, death is the great joy robber. In fact, one of the most difficult places to stand in all of earth is when you stand with your feet in front of an open grave and what your body of a loved one is being lowered. I've been there. Many of you have been there. And others of you will be there. And death is the destroyer of any real meaning in this life. And the resurrection is the most incredible story known to humanity. It's the ultimate answer to our own anguish. Do you know the God who turns the worst suffering into a glorious future, the one who promises he will never leave you nor will I ever forsake you. I ask you this, do you know the suffering God? Do you know him? I love the way this book begins and I love the way this book ends. 66 movements of one concerto. And the book ends here, John writes, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Then he says this, He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, no longer be any mourning, no longer be any crying, no longer be any pain, for the first things have passed away. Do you know the suffering God that has that future? that he would love to invite you to. He wants you to be a part of that. He wants you to understand that suffering here in this life for this time is not wasted. There's a purpose in it. He wants to love you. He wants you to walk with him. He wants you to know him. Would you bow your heads with me as we conclude in prayer? Our Father, we thank you for the amazing story of the scriptures. Now, Lord, I just pray that you would open our minds, that we would be open to allow you to speak to us individually, personally. That, Lord, you would grant to us an understanding of what is happening with suffering in this world, what's happening to alert us 
and to redirect us and to shape us and to unite us. And then that we might find you, the one true living God, to bless us with your presence and the gift that you promise us. Like King David says, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, forever. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, as we consider our own relationship with God. Revelation chapter 3, the words of the Lord says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If any man will open the door, I'll come in and fellowship. I'll do life with you. While our heads are bowed and eyes closed for a moment of time, if you've never opened the door, I can't open your door. No one else can do it. But no one else can stop you from doing it. You can take just a simple step of faith today and you can open the door of your heart and you can say something like this, God, I need you. I need you. And in the best way I know how, I want to open the door of my heart and invite you to come into my life. Thank you for dying for my sin. Thank you for the gift of forgiveness. Thank you for the gift of eternal life, which now, by faith, I receive. I thank you for hearing my prayers. In Jesus' precious name, amen.